Amen. Amen. Isn't our God worthy this morning of worship? Church, you can be seated. Praise you, God. My name is Shane. Uh, I am going to be preaching the word in just a moment. Before I do, I want to invite one of our teens up here, Alec Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> and he is going to read our passage today. Like Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. <clears throat> and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank you. Thank you. Church, let me pray. Oh, Lord, your word is alive. Lord, it is powerful. And so, Lord, we don't want to hear your words today and move on. We want to be transformed. Lord, would you bring your holy words to life for us today? We ask this in your glorious name. Amen. 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 So this may sound like a jarring transition, and it is. But I want you to hang with me for a second, all right? Church, you're going to follow with this? Thank you. Sure, why not? Let's just go for it. Here it is. My wife is weird. I know, I know, you might be thinking, has Arden seen the notes? She has, and she agrees with me. She agrees with me. Now, you might be sitting there and you say, well, Shane, no, you're the weird one. We know you. You're a strange guy. I prefer quirky, but weird is appropriate too. I know I'm weird. I am. But I think because Arden is so kind, so wonderful, so smart and beautiful, see, I'm piling it on to protect myself, that people just look at her, people who don't know her that well, you see her from afar, and you just think, man, she must just put up with that guy's weirdness. Like a saintly woman who endures her husband. But, but I want to lay that to rest this morning. I want to make it abundantly clear. My wife is not a hostage to my weirdness. She is a partner. My wife is weird. I can tell some of you still don't believe me, so let me give you an example. Last Sunday was Mother's Day. Every Mother's Day for the past six years, we watched the same movie. It's Arden's Mother's Day movie. She can watch whatever she wants. I let her pick it every year, and she chooses the same exact movie year after year after year. In Arden's estimation, this movie is the greatest Mother's Day movie of all time. And trust me, her logic is sound. You ready for it? The movie my wife chooses year after year is James Cameron's 1986 sci-fi thriller, Aliens. <laughs> Greatest Mother's Day movie of all time. <laughs> Y'all, anyone who's seen it obviously knows why it's a Mother's Day movie, but, but let me just fill in real quickly. Uh, 
The main character named Ripley, she's in cryosleep. She loses her daughter to the passage of time, goes to a space colony, basically adopts the only survivor, which is a little girl, and takes care of her the whole movie. And then the aliens take her away in the third act of the movie, and she does what only a mother would do. She goes to a place where space marines went in and couldn't handle the situation, and she decides, I can go in there and get my daughter out. And she encounters a queen alien, another mother, and they basically fight over their children. That's the ending of the movie. <laughs> now, the, you would think after watching this movie for six years, I would be bored by the movie. I'd find it boring by now. But this past Sunday, as I was watching the movie, something interesting happened. See, I watched the movie differently than I did the first five times. I'm no longer captive to the plot. See, I already know the outcome of the story. I know uh, which characters I like, if they're going to make it or not. I know where they're going. And I know all the scenes in between, so I know how they're going to get there. So instead, when I'm watching it this time, I'm noticing details I never noticed before, like the score of music and how they use it, the props, wondering how did they make that, looking at the set designs. I even watch characters in the backgrounds as everyone else is delivering lines to see if they break character. I watch the movie differently because it's been spoiled for me. The Christian life is so similar. We know the ending of this story, don't we? We know where we're going. We know where we're going. We know that Jesus is alive right now and that he is coming back. We know that. We know that he is going to rend the the sky, and he is going to descend, and that God is going to bring heaven down. There's going to be a new earth, and God is going to dwell with mankind again. We know that. We know that he will conquer his foes, that death and sin will be no more. We know this, but it's different than the movie I watch because where in Aliens I know every scene in this life, we don't know how we're going to get there from here. See, we know that we're going to get there. We know that that's coming. But here today where we are, in our seats this morning, we don't know how we're going to get there from here. Now, of course, we get there through Jesus. But what I mean is the ups and downs of life. The joys and the sorrows, the weddings and the funerals, the feasts and the famines. We don't know what lies between here and there. And that is the tension that is in our passage this morning. There are things that we know, and there are things that we don't know. And what we know this morning, what we know, gives us strong confidence about everything that we don't know. Let's start with what we don't know. Look at the passage with me again. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. These verses are connected to the passage that Christian preached last week. We are picking up on a thought about suffering in this life. Suffering during the time between here and there. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced a moment in this life where you did not know how to pray? Just 
Maybe it was just one word able to come out of your mouth. Why? Help. But you just didn't really know how to pray what you ought. I know I have. It was August 27, 2009. I was lying in my bed about to fall asleep. I was living at my parents' house at the time. My mom knocked on my bedroom door. I was just about to fall asleep. She knocked on the door. She wanted me to know that my sister-in-law was on the way to the hospital and that she was in labor. I went to bed with joy in my heart, hope for what tomorrow was about to bring. Hours later, I woke up to another knock on my bedroom door. My mom was crying. I had lost my nephew, Peyton, during delivery. In my mom's voice, there was deep pain. I think it was the first time in my life that I had ever heard the sound of grief so palpable. Most of you probably know what I'm talking about. Grief has a sound, a tone. I went to the hospital, it was probably three or four in the morning. I went up to see my brother and sister-in-law. I had no words. We just cried. After leaving their room, I wasn't ready to drive home, so I went down to the lobby of the hospital. And it was two or three in the morning, so it was just empty. Empty tables, empty chairs all around me. Couldn't see anyone in sight. Those big vaulted ceilings, so every noise just echoes around. And I was broken. I needed comfort. I needed something. And so I grabbed my Bible, which I brought with me, and, and I put it down on the table, and I flipped it open to a random spot. I didn't know where to go. And my, my, my eyes landed on these verses, and I just I read the first verses that my eyes landed upon. It was Jesus talking to his disciples about sorrow and joy. He was telling them how he's going to go to the cross and die. And he says to them, your sorrow, you will have sorrow, but it will turn to joy. And just like the passage Christian preached on last week, Jesus uses the illustration of a mother giving birth to a child. It says this, this is John chapter 16, verse 20 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish or joy that a human being has been born into the world. I read those words. And all I could ask God in that moment was this. What about the mother who goes through all that pain? And their child is not born into this world. And alone, in a hospital lobby, I heard that sound of grief again, echoing off the walls. But this time, it was escaping from my lungs. In trembling fits of trying to catch my breath, I wept bitterly, alone. 
Christian was right last week when he said that the groaning in these passages, his passages talked about how we groan and creation groans with us. And today we see the Spirit also groans. He's right that in this passage, it is a figure of speech. It's a collective lament. It's a crying under the burden of what is, but with expectation waiting for what it knows to come. It's the groan of those in the here who know we're going to get there, but are experiencing the reality that we're not there yet. Let me say that again. It's the groan of those in the here who know we're going to get there, but are experiencing the reality that we're not there yet. But let me tell you, at my bedroom door, up in that hospital room and in that lobby, that collective lament found an audible expression. Those groans were vocal that night. I did not know what to pray. I groaned. But as we groaned, me, my mom, my brother, my sister-in-law, our loved ones, all of creation around us was groaning too. Because death is unnatural. Even the world around us, creation itself knows. Knows that this is not how it's supposed to be. What was incredibly encouraging to me today, looking back all these years, looking back at that night where I'm just crying alone in a hospital lobby, what gives me great encouragement today is that the Spirit of God, even though I felt so alone, was with me. And he was groaning too. I want you to get that. Let's not rush past that idea. God was groaning. You know, Jesus came and he walked amongst us. We catch Jesus groaning like this when he laments over the death of Lazarus. He arrives at the graveside and, and even though Jesus knows that he is going to give resurrection life, he's going to call Lazarus out of that tomb, even though he knows where this is going, he looks at the grief of others and he weeps. That teaches us something very important. Knowing the ending does not take away the heart-rending grief that comes from the brokenness of this world. See, I think we're more familiar with Jesus taking this role and experiencing these things. But God hasn't stopped groaning over the brokenness in this world. When the Spirit came down and dwelt in us, the church, he uniquely placed himself into the brokenness of this fallen world. God is so close to us, so involved in the story that he groans over the expanse of what is and what should be. See, God knows the end of the story, but he still groans with us in this world. It's also deeply encouraging that the Spirit's groans, even though they're too deep for words, they are heard by the Father who searches hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit. He hears these groans, and they are prayers. And he answers them. When I don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays for me exactly what I need. That is deeply encouraging. 
Now, I know in suffering how to ask for suffering to end, right? So when it says we don't know how we ought to pray, it's not like I I don't know how to say, Lord, can you stop this? Because I know how to pray that. And we pray those prayers, and those are good prayers. But the Spirit knows exactly how I'm going to get from here this morning to there in glory in the new heaven and new earth. The Spirit of God knows all the scenes in between. He knows what is going to happen to mold me into the image of Jesus. So he can pray in the midst of my deep pain exactly how I need to be prayed for and perfectly according to the Father's will. So get this, every prayer from the Spirit is the best thing for us, and every prayer from the Spirit is answered yes, because it's according to the God's will. Brothers and sisters, this is the section that we don't know in the passage, right? This is the things that we do not know. And what we can see so clearly in the things that we do not know is that we know that God is so for us. Hear this. God is not distant and far off watching us in this world. He is here. And he groans deeply with us in the midst of times where I just don't know what to pray. And he groans perfect prayers on my behalf. Because God knows how he's going to take us from here to there. We may not know, but God does. God is with us this morning, and it leads us to what we do know in the passage. Look again at the passage with me. This is verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So often, verse 28 has been ripped from its context. It is easily one of the most taken out of context verses in the Bible. We want to define good for ourselves. So we pretend this verse is on an island and we say, I know good. I know what good is. It's, it's that I get what I want, or only good things happen to me. But this verse is not alone. The verses we just looked at in front of it show that God himself is so near to us in the midst of our suffering that he groans with us perfect prayers for us. And it's followed by the phrase, according to his purpose. And that purpose is drawn out in the following verses. Before I go there, Let me finish my story. See, my brothers, my brother Justin, who lost his son, and and me, and my younger brother Travis, he's not a part of this story, but I'm going to throw him under the bus anyways. We had fallen into cultural Christianity during our teen years. At best, some of us were lukewarm, and at worst, we were completely lost. I had been born again a few years before we lost Peyton, and I had prayed for my older brother Justin and my sister-in-law Tiffany to know the love of Christ. And I had proclaimed the gospel to them. It was hard to escape at that time of my life. I was a new believer. I had a lot of zeal. And so basically all I ever talked about was Jesus. It's a good place to be. And in that time, I saw no change for years. 
I saw no change. But I saw something happen in the midst of my loved one's grief. Justin, who was content going through life on his own in his sorrow, searched for comfort and truth where he had been raised to look for it. He started reading the Bible. We would get together on Mondays. It was both of our days off. We called them Manday Mondays. Right? Don't judge. We would grill meat, watch action movies, play video games, poker, and swim in a pool. Sounds awesome now, right? We started to do something else. We started to read and discuss John Piper's Desiring God. And over the following months, I watched as my brother, who was hardened inside, come to life. At his initiation, we started praying for Tiffany's salvation. And amazingly, in the midst of grief, instead of hardening her heart towards God, Tiffany softened. My, my brother and sister-in-law who are watching online today attend a local church where they are raising their two daughters and their second son to know Jesus. This is what I know. I wanted to be an evangelist to my brother and my sister-in-law, but God knew they needed a better evangelist. He sent my nephew Peyton into this world, the womb of his mother, And without ever drawing a breath, he proclaimed more clearly with his life and death the brokenness of this world and the need of a Savior than I was ever able to do. One day, I look forward to this day where I will be in the new heavens and new earth and I will walk up and I will kiss the feet of Peyton the Evangelist because how beautiful are the feet that carry the good news. Now, should you go then, ever meet my brother and sister-in-law, Justin and Tiffany, and go in their face and say, so it was good you lost your son. Not unless you want a lesson in suffering yourself. They are godly people, but they will punch you in the face. It was bad. But God, for those who love him, he will ultimately work everything for good. For those called according to to the purpose of his will. This isn't Christian karma. This isn't we don't experience bad things and then go, well, I'm going to get something good later. No. And we aren't supposed to obsessively look at circumstances and say, this is bad. What is God up to here? Where's the good? Where is it? Oh, look, there it is. That must be it. That's what God's up to. Take courage in that. No, don't, don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to others. That is oppressive. That is an unbearable weight. This passage doesn't say, brothers and sisters, look for what God is up to in the suffering in this world. It doesn't tell us to figure out what we don't know. It tells us to hold fast to what we do know. Arden and I have walked through miscarriages. I can't point to anything. I have no idea today why God allowed me to lose my children. There are martyrs in church history who were brutally murdered, and there was no time left after that for them to get anything in this life good. We don't know how we ought to pray. We don't know what will happen between here and there, but we are supposed to hold fast to what we do know, and this is what we know. (laughs) 
We don't know how God will use everything in our lives, but we know to what purposes he will. Look at the verses again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And that asks us, what is that purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 29 tells us, those who God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Why? That, that we would be adopted into God's family. That we would be siblings with Jesus, and he would be the firstborn of many children. This is amazing. This is the purpose of God. Everything works towards that good for those who are called. This is the good that the passage is talking about. We are to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, in this life, we call that process sanctification. Chris had preached on this weeks ago. It's one of the first fruits of our glory. It's, it's the putting to death our old self, saying no to our sinful flesh, and putting on this new life that we have in Jesus. We are being made into what we will be in heaven forever. Every once in a while when you look at someone else, you might catch a glimpse. Now, it'll be a smudge glimpse, but you'll still catch a glimpse of what that person will look like in eternity. It's those moments in life when you look at your spouse or your children or someone else and you just stop and say, wow, that looks a lot like Jesus. We are catching glimpses of their future glory. Now our, our passage mentions this process of being made into the image of Jesus, but then quickly pushes past the process to put our gaze on the end result, our glory. Look what follows in these verses. It's a chain of events that happen. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. It reminds me of setting up a long train of dominoes. Has anyone used to do that? I loved doing that as a kid. You stand them up vertically in a row. You make this big design, and then you tap the first one. They go all the way down the train to the very last one. Right? That's if you do it right. That's if you do it right. See, the problem is I loved making those curve patterns. You know what I'm talking about? I love making wide churns. I'd see how wide I could make it. And the problem is I was not very good at it. So inevitably what would happen is I'd hit the first one, it would go, and then it would get to that churn, and then one rogue domino would fall and just barely miss the next one in the chain. And it would be broken. The chain of events in these verses are unbreakable. There is no chance that a domino will not fall into place here. These events are so solid that if the first one is true, then the last one is true also. How can we be so sure? Well, this isn't a chain-built domino chain, is it? I want you to notice the simple word in these verses. He. Who's the he? God. Look at it over and over again. God foreknew you. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. He glorified you. It is not you. You have not called yourself. 
You have not glorified yourself. He has. Brothers and sisters, this morning, it is amazing. It is beautiful and it is reassuring that we get to rest in a God-centered salvation and glorification. There is no way we can mess this up. He has done it. And so we rest in what he has accomplished for us. I love that. Look at the word for new here. Look at the word foreknew. If what it meant by this word is uh, purely knowledge, right, that he foreknew, just knowledge, then the next line in the chains wouldn't make sense. Because in that sense, God knew of everyone in all history, but not everyone is called. Not everyone is justified. Not everyone is glorified. So instead, this knowing has to be understood as the kind of knowing that is very common in the Bible. It's an intimate, relational knowing. It is one of love. Andrew Murray, a commentator and pastor, when talking about this passage, says that the word for new is like for loved. Think about that for a second. Before all of creation, God intimately knew you in love. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, God, before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, he intimately knew you in love. He knew everything about you. He didn't have a few glimpses of your life, maybe you at your best moments, and thought, yeah, I could love her. No, God knew everything. He saw every twisted thought. Every gross word, every unspeakable deed, everything that no one else in this room knows about, he knew. And he loved you. Before we could do anything, this is how God shows his love for us at the right time. While we were still dead in our sin, Christ died for us. He loved you when you had nothing to offer. Rest in that grace this morning. He didn't predestine those whom he foreloved. Now, we're going to get to predestination in coming chapters, but, but let's just settle this. Predestined for what? Spoiler. Glory. Those who he predestined, he calls. Like Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. This is the kind of call we have. Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, get out of there. And Lazarus, Lazarus dead, did not hear Jesus say that and say, hmm, do I want to live? No. When Jesus spoke, Lazarus' dead heart started to beat. Blood flowed. And he heard Jesus say, Lazarus, get out of that tomb and come here. In the same way, we were dead in our sins. And somewhere in the throne room of heaven, a voice boomed your name. And he said, get out of that grave and come here. And brothers and sisters, in that moment, you came to life. We call this irresistible grace. Those whom he called, he justified. We've looked at justification in Romans. Jesus has come and lived and died in your place that you might be justified. The legal constraints of the law have been met. You are no longer condemned. 
Do you see the stacking of what's happening here? How much God has done for us this morning? And now we come to the part of here and there. We are justified here, but how do we get there? What's next in the chain? Those whom he justified, he is also glorified. Wait a minute. Let's not ignore that that verse is speaking in past tense. How? Because God is spoiling the end of this story. It has been written. He knows the story. He is telling you and me how this all ends. It is so certain that it's already happened. You this morning, if you are in Christ, you're glorified. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I think back to that bitter question I had in the hospital. What about, what about the mother who doesn't get to have their child? Jesus is not using a broken analogy. He is saying that like childbirth, we groan, but there will be no loss here. He's promising that the joy of these birth pains, or, I'm sorry, the, the, the joy that's set after these birth pains will not be found wanting. If, if we are looking at what's to come and what we know, we will not be let down. If our eyes drop to the here and we try to find something here to hope in, it will leave us wanting. But if we reach for the living waters, we will not find only dust in our mouths. We don't know the churns of this life, but we know this. Those who he foreloved, he has also glorified. In my college years, I was deeply impacted by the writings and speeches of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You may not know this, I went to an HBCU, graduate with a history degree with a focus in African history. And I got to listen to a lot of his speeches. He spoke with such a power and eloquence. But I think what affected me so deeply about his speeches was this, the certainty of which he spoke about a future that didn't look so certain. He spoke prophetically, confidently. And there's something so desperately needed in our uncertain world today. We need people to speak like this again. A conviction of things hoped for, a certainty of things unseen. That we would see so clearly the there, that we could speak to a world around us so confidently that, that even if we are in the midst of suffering, even if the world looks so dark, Christian hope would shine even brighter because we know who he is. We know what he's done, and we know where the story is going. My favorite speech Dr. King gave was so sadly his last. He was speaking about racism, bigotry, and division. He gave this speech in the evening, and the following day he was murdered. He was talking to black men and women who longed so deeply for a future that was different. He was talking to the civil rights movement about work that was to come, but a hope of where they were going. And at the end of this powerful speech, he references that there have been threats on his life, that he knows about them. 
And he concludes with these words. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I couldn't get this speech out of my mind when preparing the sermon. Those words haunted me this past week. I personally, I believe that Dr. King is standing in the glory of God today. Now, I don't know when he gave this speech. I know what he was looking at, the darkness he saw around him. And I don't know in that moment if he had his eyes set on something that would happen in the here, in the coming years, or if he was looking to Christ coming back. But I know he was right. Brothers and sisters, we can speak with such a clear confidence in this world because Jesus has gone up to the mountaintop. Jesus hung on a cross on the Mount of Skull and he saw the promised land. Jesus, with his last dying breath, he forced out these words. It is finished. Because he knew in that moment that we, his people, were going to make it there with him. Jesus just put into place the next thing in the chain of our glory. He, in that moment, purchased us and, and justified us. And he saw what comes next. Our glory. We will see the face of Jesus. And in his face, we will see the glory of God. And in that moment, we will be made like him. Brothers and sisters, let us speak with deep certainty in this world because the end has been spoiled for us. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that I could watch Aliens differently because it's been spoiled for me. I've seen it so many times that I can watch it differently than someone who's watching it for the first time. We need to spoil the story of the gospel for ourselves and others. We need to watch the scenes of the Old Testament, a story of redemption unfolding. We need to watch the life and death and resurrection of Jesus over and over and over again. 
We need to spoil the ending of the story by looking forward with Christian hope, certainty. We need to recite the lines of the Bible. We have the script. Let's read it and memorize them so that when they're spoken, we can mouth it along. We need to do this so that in the moments where we experience the scenes that we don't know, we can have confidence because we know where the story is ultimately going. There is no one who doesn't need this story spoiled for them afresh this morning. There's not one of us in this room who does not need this story played again. And I've been calling it the end, but honestly, what we know and believe is it's just the beginning, isn't it? We know the beginning of everything to come. So for those who are suffering today, those who have lost a child, a spouse, or another loved one, for those who have been diagnosed with cancer, or maybe you're just straining over the pain of forced separation from this pandemic and you haven't seen your mom or dad in over a year, let me spoil the story for you this morning. You are glorified. Nothing, I mean nothing, can take this away from you. Your grief is very real. God is with you, and it's so real to him. He is groaning with you this morning. He is groaning perfect prayers for you. And I promise you, his prayers are to this end, that you're going to get there. For those who are entangled in sin this week, you've looked at pornography every night this week or for hours at a time, or maybe you're in the midst of adultery, for those who are starting to suspect that their spouse is right, that they are an alcoholic or an addict or a glutton. For those who are striving and striving and striving to earn God's love, but you realize that you can't earn it. Let's spoil the story afresh this morning. You are glorified. He knew you before you existed, and he loved you the same he knows it all, and he's still calling you out of it into his glory. Your sin is serious and grievous, yes, but God's love is greater. He is calling you out of that grave into new life this morning. Like Lazarus coming out of the tomb, Chris references weeks and weeks ago, still wrapped up. And maybe that's you this morning. You're just so aware that you are entangled in your sin. Brother, Sister, we're all debtors of grace in this room today. And there are brothers and sisters around you who would love to walk up to you and start the process of helping you untangle this. Because you are glorified. You don't need to wear the rags of death anymore. And for everyone else here today, brothers and sisters, let's do this today. Spoil the story. Spoil it over lunch. Gather with another family and talk about this story. Spoil it on the car ride home. Talk to your children about it. 
Spoil it at the dinner table tonight. Pray together as a family. Open up the Bible after dinner. Spoil it for your children. Spoil it over their bedside tonight as you pray with them. And as you're doing this with your children, you know what you're doing? You're spoiling it for yourself because you need it spoiled again too. Over and over and over again this week. Let us as Christians never get bored of this story. We know what has happened in scenes before and we know the last scene. I don't know what today's going to bring for you, brother and sister, but I know where it's going to end up. Because He foreloved us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. And He has glorified us. So we can say with Paul, in the midst of suffering, the Spirit residing in us and praying for us, in this chain of salvation that God is holding for us, we can say with Paul after these words, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? This song we're about to sing, it starts slow, but I trust as we start to sing it, you know where it's going. And this is what I want us to do this morning in worship. I want us in the midst of whatever we're going through here today to sing these words with great confidence. Not because we have our eyes set on something else here. Not because we're promised that whatever we're going through is going to end now. But because our eyes lift up together to there. Let me pray. Lord, would you give us faith right now to see what is not seen. Give us great confidence because you have saved us. You have glorified us. And it is certainly so. So Lord, let faith arise in this room as we sing. Let us hold fast to what you have done. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.